Well done, worship team. Amen? Good job, Neely. Thank you. Thank you for stepping in. We're continuing to pray for Brother Harish and his recovery from heart surgery, and of course, Miss Kim, our pianist, as she's caring for her husband. So thank you to the worship team for doing such a fine job and leading us this morning. We are in Exodus chapter 28, 29, and 30 today. And I want to say, um, by way of introduction, people come up with all kinds of reasons, reasons to dress for a part. Maybe for a job interview. Or maybe it's a costume. One of my favorite uh, characters, dress-up characters uh, of all time would be the uh, always hilarious, always vibrant Dr. Mustachio that shows up at Vacation Bible School every year. We'll, we'll protect his real identity. I don't want to disappoint anybody, but fake ma- mustaches and abounding and silly outfits and so forth. If you haven't figured it out yet, what one is wearing can wield great power. It'll help us, it can help us to fit in or to stick out. It often defines our activities, and it can point to what we prioritize. There's a really, a rather funny story, humorous, true story, that illustrates this point very well. In March 2014, Virginia University was going to play Duke for the ACC Basketball Conference Championship. A young college-aged fan named Danny, while sitting at home watching his beloved Virginia win the semifinal game and thus earning their spot in the championship, was desperate as a Virginia native to find a way to attend the championship game and get as close to the action as he possibly could. Although tickets were very expensive and outside of his financial reach, he, might, he managed to, to get online quickly and he bought a couple tickets in the nosebleed section But he also noticed while watching that game that there was really only one difference, really only just a few differences between him and all the coaching staff that were on the court side, of course, down on the floor. They were this, an orange tie, a navy blue sport coat, and a clipboard. So young Danny went to Walmart, and for a fraction of the cost of courtside seats, he secured his necessary uniform. He arrived at the game in that uniform and proceeded to walk down the aisle to the court and boldly act like he just belonged where he was going. He gave a head nod to the ushers with confidence and they lifted the rope and let him in. They said, good luck, coach. And he said, thank you. He sat on the bench most of the game. He can be seen, if you Google this, you can see him in the team huddle on several occasions he shook hands with Duke's legendary Coach K after the game and the post-game uh, good game talk. And best of all, his team won, so he was given the championship white t-shirt and the hat, and he celebrated with the team on the court as they were cutting down the nets. Later, the coach of Virginia's basketball team was asked for comment on Danny's stunt. He just chuckled and said, I just thought he was one of the new hires. <laughs> and then he said this, I guess let that be a lesson to all you young people that there is a lot of power in being clothed the right way and just being confident in where you belong. The title of this sermon is a title of a hymn that I just can't get tired of right now. I posted it to Facebook on our members group 
earlier this week, and it's a sermon. The sermon and that hymn are titled, His Robes for Mine, His Robes for Mine. Our text today is all about the clothing, preparing, and purifying the priests of the Lord to play their part in making atonement for God's people. Everything they are doing in chapters 28 and 29 is preparing them to enter into the presence of God, and that's what chapter 30 is really about. It pertains to the ministry of the high priest in the presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies. This group of verses goes really, obviously goes together with what Pastor Matt preached last week in Exodus chapter 25 through 27, and it finishes in Exodus chapter 31, which I will preach the next time we are in Exodus on February the 19th. So God is giving Moses the very specific instructions for how his people are to worship him and make atonement for their sins. God is sending a twofold message to his people through these instructions. Number one, I am your God, and I am going to dwell with you. And that was 25 through 27. And now our passage today deals with, secondly, I am holy, you are not. Therefore, there must be atonement for your sins that you might be able to come into my presence. So two, two things being communicated overall by God with this tabernacle and system of purification rites for these priests. I am your God, I'm going to dwell with you. That's the tabernacle, right? And then secondly, I am holy, you are not. Therefore, there has to be atonement for your sin before you can come into my presence. So, yes, God is going to be their God and dwell with them. But this creates a problem because a holy God cannot abide with sinful Israelites. So there must be a way that they can be purified so they don't just drop dead in God's presence. How God is solving this dilemma is exactly what we're looking at today. How it's pointing towards what actually solves this dilemma is what we're looking at today in Exodus chapter 28 through 30. Three chapters, 127 verses. I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but we're going to take it on its parts. I'll try to draw your eyes to important sections of it. Two points, three chapters, all driving towards this central thesis. Here it is. No one enters into the presence of God without being properly robed. No one enters into the presence of God without being properly robed. And so a key question we would be asking of this text is, well, what is that robe? Or what must one be robed in in order to enter into the presence of God? So let's jump right in. Exodus 28, the robe of the high priest. I want to point out, if, and hopefully you will take some time or you have taken time to read through these in their entirety, uh, but as you read through this passage, 28, 29, and 30, I, I want to draw your attention to how God is concerned with the intricate details of even how the priests are dressed. This indicates at least one thing for how God wants to be worshipped. He takes it very seriously. It's important. The great care and specificity of seemingly minor details seem to communicate so. No Old Testament saint could have read through this passage and come away thinking that God could be approached casually. And to add to the seriousness of the chasm that exists between God and humans, two times in verses 35 and 43 of chapter 28, it says that they better do all these things as the Lord has prescribed so that they will not what? Die. 
They won't be killed. This is what is at stake for the priests when they come before the Lord. Because the wages of their sin is what? Death. There are four main parts to this outfit. The ephod, the robe, the breastplate, and the diadem and turban that sits on his head. Notice what is missing from this outfit. He does not have shoes. There's no curly pointed priest shoes. Why? They were to minister barefoot. Why? Because the place that they are standing on is what? Holy ground. This is serious business. This is before the face of God, burning bush type of serious business. So if you would, let's bring our eyes to the text. Verse 28, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. It says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him. Now remember, this is God speaking to Moses, giving instruction to Moses. Bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they, may, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that shall be made, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother and his sons, to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. So why is God commanding that the high priest be adorned in these specific ways. It's in the answer is in verse 2. For what? For glory and for beauty. But not nebulous glory and not nebulous beauty. The high priest's garments are made very similar to the tabernacle itself. Same cloth, same type of cloth, same types of precious stones and materials. The squareness of the breastplate is a squared, or excuse me, a scaled-down version to match the square de- squareness of the altar itself. God is concerned down to every detail because it's not just pointing to glory and beauty in general, but rather it's pointing to glory and beauty of Him, of God. It's His glory and His beauty. The glory and beauty of God not being like other false deities who are far off and undescribed. No, rather, this is the God who is near, remember? Tabernacling with them, dwelling with his people, and he has been very clear to make himself known to them. This puts him in a clear juxtaposition, clear difference between him and all the other pagan gods being worshipped in this area, in the ancient Middle East. They had to guess at what their gods wanted. There was no guessing with God. He told them what he wanted. He gave them exact specifications. He said, it's for my glory and for my beauty. I am the God who dwells with you and makes himself known to you. Then in verses 9 through 21, to summarize, there are two sets of stones to be woven into the shoulders and then a set of stones on the breastplate itself. The first set is two onyx stones with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on them, six on one and six on the other, and they are to be one on one shoulder and one on the other. 
Then there's this ornate breastplate with 12 precious stones on them, and there on them are inscribed the 12 tribes of Judah, the 12 names, one on each stone. And so symbolically and literally, the high priest is bearing the people's names on his shoulders. He's bearing the weight of the tribes on his shoulders. And where else? Over his heart. And all this before the Lord. He was their representative. When the high priest wore this garment and entered into the Holy of Holies, he became Israel federally. He became Israel covenantally and representatively. The high priest was Israel, and if you were an Israelite, you went into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, in and through, and only in and through, the high priest. Can you hear the whispers of the eternal high priest through this instruction of Moses, bearing the names? Consider Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5. They, this is important, those priests, these earthly priests, ready? They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to this pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much better, more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And so the author of Hebrews is making a direct reference to Exodus chapter 25 through 31. Look at verse 5. They, being the priests and the tabernacle, serve as a copy and a shadow of eternal realities that find their home in whom? In Christ, in Jesus. Remember what I said when I began this text in Exodus. What is the purpose of the tabernacle and of these priests? To display that God is with his people and to deal with their what? Sin. But not in its fullest expression in Exodus 25 through 31. It is merely a shadow or copy of the real thing. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us, For in Christ the fullness of God with us and our reconciliation to him is expressed. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 7, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But the first covenant was not faultless, so there is an absolute reason to look for the coming of the second. And in the second covenant, there is now a perfect mediator between God and and men. He is not clothed in symbolic righteousness as the high priest 
in the line of Levi, not in an image of God's glory and beauty, but arrayed in the actual righteousness, glory, and beauty of this God who is with us. And on his shoulders and close to his heart, he bears the names of God's people, ready to make intercession for them at the throne of grace. And as for the enmity caused by sin that existed between the priest after the order of Levi and of Aaron, the enmity that put them at risk of death when they went into the Holy of Holies, this high priest, this true and better high priest, who comes not from the imperfect line of the Levites, as Hebrews 7 tells us, is a priest after the order of a guy named Melchizedek. This mysterious high priest, king of Jerusalem, who shows up in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek, whose name literally means, my king is righteousness. My king is righteousness. Genesis 14 recognizes him as the priest of the God Most High, and Abraham pays homage to him and tithes to him 10%. The true high priest is the high priest and the high king of righteousness. This is why Hebrews identifies Jesus not affiliated with earthly high priests who are sinful and imperfect, but rather and after the order of this high priest and king of righteousness named Melchizedek. Therefore, clothed in his righteousness, he has nothing to fear when entering into the Holy of Holies. As a mere imperfect shadow, Aaron and his sons have everything to fear. But this high priest, whom Exodus 28 is pointing towards, robed in his own righteousness, in his own glory, in his own beauty, will rightfully and boldly approach the throne of God, not with fake college student confidence, right? trying to get good seats at a basketball game, but real, absolute, rock-solid, hard-earned confidence, the kind of confidence that a son has before his good father. Jesus can approach the throne of God because he knows that is his throne. He belongs there. It's his. And as for the shadow of death that the priests of Aaron must so fear, it flees in the light of Christ's righteousness. And so Jesus can absolutely go into, he has earned his priestly garments in order to enter into the Holy of Holies, as we heard read from Hebrews in our opening scripture today by Brad Addington. Thank you, Brad. Let's continue on in Exodus 29. Let's look at, let our eyes go to verses 1 through 9 in Exodus 29 now. So we know that, before we read this, we know that Christ has his own earned righteousness that rests on him. He can go into the Holy of Holies. But what about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? We haven't answered our question yet, so let's continue on. Jesus has earned his own righteousness, and he wears it. Exodus 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, them being the priests, that they may serve me as priests, Take one bowl of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil. 
You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. You shall then set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall make the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So Moses was to bring Aaron and his sons to the front of the tent of meeting. He was to wash them, anoint them with this special oil, which, for further meditation this week, I've been pondering this, and I don't have an answer to it exactly clearly, clearly yet, but Psalm 133 talks about how sweet it is when brothers dwell in unity. What does it say it's like? It's like the oil poured over the head of Aaron and dripping down his beard. This is the oil they're talking about. This is the ceremony that's being referenced to in Psalm 133. Look that up. Maybe we'll have a, a further conversation about it. I'm intensely interested as to why the psalmist said that. Why he might have been referring to this. We'll chase it out later, though. Then they did, they, so then he brings them to the tent of meeting. He washes them, he anoints them with the oil. Then they were to bring a bowl and lay their hands on it, signifying the transfer of their guilt to that animal and then slaughtering it. Essentially saying, this is what we deserve. This is what we should be getting for our sin. Kill the bull. Then they take, did the same with a goat. They, they took their hands, they put it on him, they killed the goat, and they took his blood and anointed the altar itself. And then they took another goat and they laid hands on it and killed it, and its blood was combined with oil and sprinkled all over Aaron and his sons, and some of the blood was put on their right earlobe and on their right thumb and on their right big toe. And I think that commentary bears out that that signifies that this was a, a, a symbolic uh, total consecration. It was, a, it was a consecration of their ears that hear and their hands that work and their feet that move swiftly for justice, right, and mercy for God's people. So we're entirely setting this person aside. We're entirely purifying everything about this person to be a priest. And this was just the first day. Then every day for six days after this, they were to repeat the sacrifice of the bull. Then finally, after the ordination ceremony was done, they were to maintain a morning and evening sacrifice of a lamb without blemish for the purpose of the ceremonial cleansing of the people of Israel for their sins. This was to be carried on every day insofar as the Aaronic priesthood was active. A couple things to note. In order to serve in the presence of a holy God, in a holy place, in a holy work, one must be cleansed. This is the loud and clear message of chapter 29. In the eternal economy of God, sin costs something. And that cost is illustrated by the fact that the priests are laying their hands on the animals before they slaughter them in order to say, this bull or ram stands for me. This bull is my substitute for my sin. I deserve to die, but this animal will die in my stead. And there must be blood. Lots of blood. If you get easily grossed out, 
you might want to tune out for a second because about to go all farm boy here. Bulls are big and they are mean and they are expensive and they are the pride of their owners. Bulls aren't kept as bulls unless they have desirable genetic traits that you want to pass along and create a whole herd out of cattle with those same desirable genetic traits. This is what a bull is useful for. And that means in a herd of any size, you could have like 50 male calves born and only one of them is going to be left with his capacity to actually breed and pass on his genetics. The others are to be castrated, grown up and turned into hamburger. That's what you call a steer. Why am I telling you this? To help you understand how expensive of an offering God is requiring of his people. He's not asking for one prize bull. He's requiring seven. From a nomadic people with limited herds and resources. Most likely, this is why everyone in chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, there's that quirky little text there talking about a census, and everybody has to pay a half shekel. Most likely, this is so that the whole nation of Israel is bearing the financial burden of these sacrifices to ordain these priests. And a bull isn't a goat. By the time they got to the goats, they were probably breathing a sigh of relief. A bull weighs 2,000 pounds, and he's as powerful as a pickup truck. That's a lot of blood. And seven times he makes them do this. Seven times. Day after day after day, lay their hands on this dangerous, expensive, unpredictable monster, and then they have to kill it. Newsflash, bulls don't like to be killed, especially with flint knives. And you thought your work was rough. Imagine these guys, right? Why does he put them through this? Because he wants them and the people, he wants us to realize that your sins, that my sins, that their sins, even the ones that we think are small, God sees them, and they are a really big deal. And it takes death, blood, lots of it, to atone. But remember, it wasn't actually the blood of these bulls and goats that was atoning for anything. Because remember, what is all of this? It's a copy or a shadow. This first priesthood is a shadow of the true and better priesthood that is to come. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but, excuse me, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of their sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Here it is. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he had said, when he had said above, 
you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings and burnt and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for once for New Testament saints, once for all. So therefore, we see that no one, even these priests, was effectively atoned for by the blood of these bulls and goats, but rather God was able to pass over the sins of the Old Testament saints who had faith in him and then count it to them as righteousness because there was a true and better effectual sacrifice that was to come. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. These were the words of John the Baptist as Jesus walked down toward him into the river Jordan. Did Christ need to be baptized? No. Did he have anything to repent of? Of course not. This was his washing. This was his moment of setting aside, of ordination. He was being set aside for the ministry of his eternal high priesthood on our behalf. But he didn't stop there. He wasn't just the true and better high priest. He was worthy of this ministry and title as intercessor from eternity past. Of course, he had all that going for him. But that's not it. He became the very sacrifice needed to cleanse millions upon millions of souls so they might be worthy to come into the presence of Almighty God. And all this robing and washing and sacrificing that was to be done so that Aaron, and only Aaron, mind you, could do what? Where could he go once this had been done for him? Into the holies of holies and worship in the presence of the Lord. Only one man, only one representative. Yet upon Christ's death, the Gospel of Matthew records something extremely significant happening. And it happened so quickly, you might miss it if you don't know what's being talked about there. Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 51. And Jesus is on the cross. This is after he had suffered greatly on the cross. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So he died. And then look what happened. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This veil that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the world split down the middle. The veil that kept the rest of the world, that, that was, the, was the barrier necessary to keep people from dropping dead in the presence of God, was rent asunder. Our high priest is also the Lamb of God for sinners slain. It's not just him who can now enter into the presence of God. It is the leper. It is the rich man. It is the prostitute. It is the rebel, the hypocrite, the, the drunkard, the glutton, the greedy, the slothful, the gossip, the murderer, the slanderer, the swindler, the idolatrist, the slanderer. Praise God, it's you that can now enter into the Holy of Holies, and it is me. Amen? And to be robed in this righteousness, that's the answer to the question. What do we have to be wearing in order to come into the Holy of Holies and not drop dead? We have to be clothed in glory and righteousness and the purity of God himself. Jesus could do it because it was his purity. 
but he has made a way where there was no way. The answer to the question is what robe must we wear that we could come into the presence of God without fear, with absolute confidence? What robe is it? The robe of Christ. His robes for mine. His robes for mine. And to be robed in this righteousness, all we must confess is, yes, that is me. I am the gossip. I am the slanderer. I am the swindler. I am the glutton. I am the reviler of God and the breaker of his laws. But Christ is my high priest and he is my sacrifice. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. And, no, and now, no matter the filthy, law-breaking rags that cling to us, the righteousness of Christ, the garments of our high priest, washed in the blood of the Lamb of God for sinners slain, are draped upon my shoulders. The pure, white, Garments of God with us. His robes for mine. A wonderful exchange. There is power indeed in being clothed the right way. Amen? And so just as the priests were now symbolically ready to go into the Holy of Holies in chapter 30, which I encourage you to read the rest of that. They deal with the how to exact recipes on how to make the incense and the oil and all the things that are going on inside there and exactly what it is Aaron is supposed to do when he gets into the Holy of Holies. Intensely interesting, and there's lots of imagery going on there as well. But all of this leading up to that point is just simply trying to get the guy ready to go into the Holy of Holies. They're now ready to do it. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says this to us. Because we have now put on the robes of righteousness of Jesus through his atoning sacrifice. Let us now come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown of Christ my own. His robes for mine. His crown. My head in his presence, clothed in his righteousness, because 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The true and better tabernacle, the true and better high priest, the true and better lamb of God has come. He is the one we've been waiting for. He is the, the point and the thesis and the meaning of all, all the law. It's, upon him rests all in the law and the prophets, and it's the point of Exodus chapter 28 through 30. It's Jesus. It's him. In the person and work of Jesus, God both dwells with his people and he deals with our sin. He tabernacles with us and he deals with our sin. There are a few application points I can offer you today based upon that reality. 
The first one is just this. If you are a Christian, seven words, his robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. His robes for mine. Can we just take a second? Can you just take a second to marvel at that phenomenon? Second point of application is if you are donning the robes of Christ, wear them with confidence. You belong. Stride towards the throne of grace because you belong. Take your sin seriously and repent of it when you see it, but don't get caught up in what I would call morbid introspection. Listen not to the accuser of the brethren. If you are constantly doubting your salvation in Christ, you are putting entirely too much confidence in your old, stinky, sinful robes and not enough confidence in his. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. It's more. We must believe We must believe in the power of Christ's righteousness. Otherwise, we have no hope. We have no place to turn. Thirdly, where is it that we can actually come into the presence of God together? Where is it that God most actively is dwelling with his people and dealing with their sin now? It's here, it's church us the church preaching and singing and reading scripture and taking the lord's supper together and celebrating sinners saved through baptism i I really appreciated brother john devito when he was our service leader a couple weeks ago he just simply said i want to invite you into the presence of god himself we're gathered here as god's people in god's presence that is like we, that's, I know that kind of, after, I guess you get a little bit jaded because we hear that kind of thing all the time. We're like, yeah, we know we're in the presence of God. We get it. That's, that wasn't always that way. Death hung over their heads and only one man could go after all this bull killing and weird robes. But you now boldly can approach the throne of God yourself because we have been clothed in his righteousness. And finally, I want to end with this plea. It's my last application. With those of you who have not laid hold of Christ as your own, young people, aged people, men, women, and children, here's what's going to happen. Every, every person within my hearing, everybody that walks the face of this earth, we will all one day see him face to face. Let that sink in for a second. You don't know when. 
We don't know when. But you will see him face to face. Here's my question for you. What will you be wearing? What will you be wearing? Those who have not laid hold of Christ as your own, surely you know I don't have to know all I don't have to know all the sins of your life. I, and I can make this blanket statement with absolute certainty. Surely you know that your robes are not fit for such an occasion. Surely you know that. What do you have to fear more than the presence of our holy God? Would you repent today and take his robes? I want you to be ready. So badly. Prayed. I want you to be ready to face Christ. And if we're robed in his righteousness, it's with bold confidence we approach the throne and claim his crown as our own. And if we don't, then there is everything to fear. I can offer you no comfort where Scripture offers no comfort. You have everything to fear. You have everything to be terrified of. Put on his robes. Repent and put on his robes. Here's the lyrics of this song. I'm going to read it to you. We're going to sing it soon. It's just so good. His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. His robes for mine, what cause have I for dread? God's daunting law, Christ mastered in my stead. Faultless I stand, with righteous works not mine. Saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. His robes for mine. God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed, and thus the Father pleased. Christ drank God's wrath on sin, and then cried, "'Tis done. Sin's wage is paid. Propitiation won.'" Let's pray.